Oh, the things we can see, thanks to JWST. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. It's been a week since the first James Webb Space Telescope images captivated scientists and the general public alike. Aside from bringing stunning images of the cosmos, the observations are propelling astronomy to new heights. So what can scientists see from these new images? We'll speak with Embry-Riddle physics professor Terry Oswalt about how scientists are buzzing about these new observations. Then, the images are changing the way we think about our universe. No longer does it seem vast and empty, rather stunning and brilliant, teeming with activity. We'll speak with the Atlantic's Marina Corrin about how JWST images are changing the way we think and talk about the cosmos. A new era in understanding the universe. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. A cosmic nursery, a dying star, dancing galaxies, water on a planet outside our solar system, and the deepest image of the universe yet. The images released by NASA of JWST's first observations are stunning. They are stunning in appearance and even more stunning in what they bring to the world of astronomy and physics. And there's plenty more to come. To talk more about the meaning of these images for the science community, we're joined by Terry Oswalt, a professor and associate dean at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. Terry, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. So these were phenomenal images. They they captured the general public uh, and scientists alike last week. Uh, what was your reaction seeing these images for the first time? Uh, probably just like anybody else who's an astronomy buff. They're really cool, and we were absolutely flabbergasted with how much detail was apparent in these uh, four images. Mm-hmm. Do you have um, a favorite one that has been released? Uh, well, because I'm interested in dead stars called white dwarfs, I have to say I probably was uh, most interested in the uh, um uh, Southern Ring Nebula picture. But the coolest one, I think most people would ag- agree, was the one of the uh, a large gravitationally lensed collection of galaxies, the SMEX 0723 image, because that's a, a, a JWST's first truly deep field image. And it shows more detail than we've ever seen before in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. I, I asked our guest last week about this, but I mean, were you expecting these images to be as crisp and detailed and as stunning as they were? In, in other words, Terry, were your expectations met with, with these first images or, or did JWST kind of exceed those those expectations that astronomers have? I think they hit the nail right on the head. It seems pretty much exactly what most of us astronomers expected uh, in terms of resolution and depth and faintness of being able to detect really faint objects. So, um, and that that's great. I mean, that's exactly what we'd hope to see. Let's talk a bit, because you're right, that, that kind of deep field image gets, uh, gets quite a bit of uh, attention in the media. The Carina Nebula is now my desktop wallpaper. It's absolutely stunning and beautiful. But you mentioned um, one of the images, the, the Southern Ring Nebula uh, images that 
are particularly interesting to, to what you study. So let's talk about this image. What are what are we seeing in here, um, and why are you so excited to see it? What you're seeing are a comparison of a mid-infrared and a near-infrared, basically uh, one a little closer to the optical wavelength range and one a little farther into the infrared wavelength that penetrates the dust and gas. But what you're seeing is the last hurrah or the death stage of a star that, like the sun in, in several billion years, is in the process of losing its outer atmosphere. And that atmosphere is expelled by a, a very ferocious wind, not an explosion, but a wind that gradually over uh, several centuries becomes thinner, 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 and more and more transparent until the core of the star is revealed. Now, this one's particularly cool, no pun intended, uh, in that you can actually see that it's a binary star. There are two stars down there. And the bluish one in the images that have been published is the one that's lost its envelope. And that uh, so-called planetary nebula, for historical reasons, we, we don't change the original names of objects. It um, doesn't have anything to do with planets. It just in a in a uh, telescopic image looks kind of like a planet to the eye if you're looking through an eyepiece. So they're still called planetary nebulae, even though they're, they're the atmosphere of a star being expelled. Um, this particular system is uh, nice because we're looking right down the gun barrel. If we could see it from a side, you would see an hourglass figure. The material is expelled from two ends of the star, leaving the equatorial region, the skinny part of, of the gas. But we're looking right down the bowl of the, of the hourglass shape. So, so it looks sort of oval or round in, in shape. And, and this kind of observation confirms the stellar models that people have put together about how stars shuck off their envelopes as they die and return material to the interstellar medium. You and I are made out of the stuff that previous generations of stars like this one have returned to the interstellar medium. Mm -hmm. That's kind of poetic <laughs> to look at it and say that we're looking at star stuff that's that's made us. Like we're looking at it, like we we've never been able to see it this clearly, have we? Yeah, that's right. We're this is the clearest image of of a planetary nebula that I've seen to date. They're all very beautiful. If you you go and Google planetary nebula, you'll see a whole smorgasbord of beautiful shapes, sizes, and colors. Uh, just as an FYI, the colors that you see in this particular image correlate to uh, oxygen, nitrogen, and all the other chemical elements that were manufactured by that star before it lost its envelope. So astronomers can use that to analyze where the oxygen is, where the carbon is, where the nitrogen is, and even molecules. Radio astronomers primarily deal with molecules because molecules are more visible in the uh, radio region of the spectrum. So the stuff that we're made out of, we're, we're actually doing chemical analyses using spectroscopy, uh, looking at the individual colors of light that are emitted by gases like this. Come back in 100,000 years and you'll just see a bright blue-white star with its little reddish-yellow companion going around each other and no more nebula. Mm-hmm. I'll have to book you for the show for that one, Terry. <laughs> we'll chat in 100,000 years from now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I mean, like looking at these nebula and 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 um, they're brilliant. They, they look cool. There's there's this kind of poetry that we are made of star stuff and we're seeing it, you know, so clearly here. But 
for you as, as as a physicist and an astronomer, why are these kind of white dwarfs and, and nebulas so interesting to you? What can they tell us about our our cosmic history and and kind of our, our universal makeup? Well, my favorite answer to a question like that is that white dwarfs are the end product of stellar evolution for well over 90% of all the stars in the sky, including the sun. And we were all in school at one time or another. And when the teacher gave us a homework that we weren't familiar with, the first thing we did was to look in the back of the book or to look online or to look somewhere else for other examples that give us answers, so to speak. And the white dwarf stage is the answer for what happens to stars as they evolve. So if you can cook up a model for how stars are formed in areas like the Carina Nebula, one of the pictures that was released last week, and how they evolve through the sun's life cycle and then die as white dwarfs, if your model doesn't show a white dwarf that looks like what you see in the sky, your model's wrong. The answer in the back of the book is what white dwarfs are. I want to ask about some of the things that that may be coming out with with JWST. These are these are spectacular images. Um, they're very interesting uh, observations for you in, in in your field of study. But I mean, what's on the horizon that's that's really exciting um, for an astronomer like yourself, Terry? Well, the the main purpose of JWST is to finally image and analyze the very first generation of stars that formed after the Big Bang. And that first JWST deep field image is one of many more to come that probe what what, what we call cosmic dawn. Uh, The universe after the Big Bang cooled and before stars formed, it became what was called the Dark Ages. And then as stars began to form and galaxies began to get together, the universe became what we see now. And if you look very closely at that first deep field image that was released last week, you'll see a lot of tiny little faint red smudges, which are galaxies that are in the process of formation, but a fraction of of a billion years after the the Big Bang. They're among the first generation of galaxies, and we're seeing them because of the look-back time that such a deep image provides us. Those objects are something like we're forming 13 billion years ago, and we're, we're basically JWST is, and all telescopes are time machines. So uh, that's one of the main purposes. The second main purpose that comes to mind is that um, related to that image of the spectrum of WASP-96b, uh, one of the 5,000 or so planets outside the solar system that missions like Kepler and now TESS are, have detected. That object is, is has been observed many times from ground and space-based telescopes, but JWST is capable of getting spectra uh, uh, the distribution of color uh, uh, across the entire uh, red to infrared spectrum um, and, and and the just features in that spectrum show us what the chemical composition of the atmosphere of that planet is as it passes in front of its parent star and the light of that star passes through the atmosphere of the planet 
it subtracts out features. And this particular image is showing us that this planet has water in its atmosphere. And as a lot of people already know, water is the basic substance that all life depends on as we know it. So finding a planet with an atmosphere that has water vapor in it is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Terry, finally, I mean, these are incredible observations, you know, especially the WASP-96b spectroscopy that's actually seeing that there's water vapor in this planet that's outside of our solar system. We've got these brilliant images. You told us of about why astronomers are so excited about the Southern Ring Nebula. But I'm wondering, what does this do for public opinion and public interest in space? Looking outside of the scientific community, what has this uh, image release done to to drum up support for for science and astronomy like this? Well, I think images like this uh, for most people are exciting because they tell us some things that we would never know without the technology that JWST provides. It's a stimulus for uh, STEM education. I remember when I was a kid, the pictures that were coming in from the early space program and the and the Apollo landings and the first few planetary flybys were part of the reasons I got interested in astronomy. Well, it's still a stimulus to get kids interested in science. It's also a payback because the public has paid for missions like this. The public deserves to know what science is being done and they deserve the the pleasure of seeing some of these beautiful pictures as a payback for the support that they've had over the last 10 years of uh, final development. Um, Also, I can't tell you how much data science has benefited from missions like this and how much uh, imaging technology has, has benefited and how much even things like mechanical and temperature control systems have been improved by the cutting edge challenges that the, the, the mission planners and engineers on the JWST project have brought to bear on solving some very complex challenges. Uh, so, it's pretty common to talk about spinoffs from NASA, but it's far more than just a, a list of things like like uh, uh, Tang and whatnot. It's it's technology driven. It's science driven. It's data driven. All of these fields cut across almost every technical discipline that exists outside of astronomy. Terry Oswald is a professor and associate dean at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Terry, thank you so much for joining us again. It's my pleasure. Just after we taped that segment, Terry shared with me a really neat web app that compares JWST images to the same objects captured by the Hubble Space Telescope. It is super cool. There's some more information on that project as well as a link to check it out on our website. Visit wmfe.org slash space. Still to come, JWST is changing the way we think and talk about the cosmos. Are we there yet? It's back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. 
Images from the James Webb Space Telescope are changing the way we think about our universe. No longer does it seem vast and empty. Rather, it's stunning and brilliant, teeming with activity. Marina Corin is a staff writer at The Atlantic who covers space. She was at the Reveal event last week and wrote about how JWST is changing the way we think and talk about the cosmos. She joins us now. Marina, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Marina, you've you've been following the story for some time now, including uh, going down to South America to watch this uh, this spacecraft launch into into orbit. Um, what was this moment like for you last week when, when these images were revealed? Yeah, I almost couldn't believe it. And I think that if you ask an astronomer, scientist, engineer, technician, anyone involved in this mission, or not even involved in this mission, but just waiting for um, the James Webb Space Telescope to to be a real telescope doing real work, I couldn't believe it. I still can't believe that Webb is in space. And so when we were getting the pictures um, last week, I, I there was a little bit of shock. Like, you know, we're finally here. This this project has been in the works for years and years, and there's been so many ups and downs, a lot of downs, a couple of controversies. So to finally get to a point where um, the public could see that this telescope was working and working beautifully, um, yeah, it, it was a shock. And it was also, I think, a delight for a lot of people to see just how sharp and detailed some of the first pictures are, um, were. Mm-hmm. You you were at the Goddard Space Flight Center for, for the image reveal. I'm wondering if you can take us there. I mean, only a, a handful of people had seen these images before they were released. Um, you know, within that community of scientists and engineers from NASA, what was it like when they were dropped? Right. So the event took place in an auditorium at Goddard and, um, you know, it was a pretty typical environment, like nothing too, too flashy, but the, the whole event was, it didn't feel like a typical NASA event. There were literal cheerleaders there before the pictures were dropped, you know, shaking their glittery gold JWST pom-poms. And they had these big cutout boards of the hexagonal mirrors that they were just kind of you know, walking around, they were trying to like warm up the crowd in a, in a way, but I don't think the crowd needed any warming up. Mm-hmm. People were ready for these pictures and um, they were shown to us in a big screen in front of the auditorium. And every time, um, you know, they showed a picture, whether it was the Carina Nebula or the gal- the other galaxy clusters, even the exoplanet spectrum, the entire auditorium just gasped collectively, you know, just the sharp sudden intake of breath and then silence as people really took in the image and and felt, I think, some awe and wonder. It was very surreal to experience this in a group setting. And the vibe was so different from the way it felt during launch. You know, everyone was super, super nervous in December um, when this telescope was on the launch pad because no one wanted it to explode. So um, this time around, there was a lot more excitement and uh, a lot more, um, you know, people could really enjoy the moment this time. Mm -hmm. Did did you get a sense that 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 these these scientists and engineers that were in attendance there expected these images to be so spectacular or or were these kind of exceedingly crisp and beautiful images um, to these people that had, had worked on the program? Yeah, my sense is that everyone was really blown away at how good the telescope is working and how sharp and just detailed these images were. I mean, if you just take a look at the Carina Nebula image, there's so much there. I mean, it it's, a, it's full of texture, and you don't think of a picture of the universe as full of texture, and yet that's what that image looks like. And I do think people were really taken aback. I sat next to a young woman who um, was an intern at Goddard, and she was in tears. You know, I, 
always look forward to 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 reading what you write after these um, kind of you know flagship or milestone events in in space exploration marina and in your piece in the Atlantic about this uh, was was no exception. You wrote. Um, one line here you said, consider the language that we often use to describe what lies beyond our atmosphere, the expanse, empty space, a void. This image completely upends that perception. You, you mentioned that in, in a previous answer that there's texture in this Carina Nebula image. We don't expect texture out there. But this idea that that space is no longer an expanse or an empty space or a void, does that change the way that, you, that you're approaching writing about these things in the future? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that Karina Nebula picture goes a long way in engaging with the public about what this mission and what you know astronomy missions in general are are doing, right? I mean, it's just there's so much going on in that picture. You know, you can see the cosmic gas and dust being like drawn into these beautiful peaks and valleys, and then um, it's surreal to think about the fact that every tiny gleaming spot in that picture is a star. Uh, and I remember seeing that, and I almost felt. I was surprised and then I had this weird sense of indignation. I felt like I was I had been lied to all this time. No one had told me that there was so much to the universe, you know. Um, you know, it was all just there and as one astronomer on the team told me, we just had to go build a telescope and go out and see what was there. Um, yeah, I think pictures like these are, you know, it's hard to engage the public with an exoplanet spectrum, although I think what JWST is going to be doing with exoplanet science is really exciting. Um, but to have these images, it's just another way to show the public, like, this is what these missions are doing. This is what's out there. And it's just as real as everything else around us here on Earth. It's as real as the planet that we're all on. Um, and now, you know, now there's a really cool instrument out there that can help us see it. Mm-hmm. Am I correct in, in assuming the Carina Nebula image is your favorite at this point? It is my favorite for now. I think, I mean, it's pretty, I, I feel overwhelmed as a space reporter knowing that this telescope will be functioning, you know, if all goes well for the next 20 years. So I have my assignment, you know, for the next 20 years. Uh, I think we'll be seeing some really cool images. I hope we'll be seeing some cool images. Um and that was what's shocking to me about the Carina Nebula image is that it's just one piece of the edge of this nebula, right? It's it's a tiny, tiny glimpse of this cosmic feature. So, um, you know, I don't, I know a lot of people last week were changing their computer backgrounds to this picture. I did not. I'm the type of person that when I'm done with work, I don't think about space, but <laughs> when it's, you know, when... I am at work and I am thinking about space. It, this is a pretty good picture to look at and draw some inspiration from. Mm-hmm. Do you get the sense that this will have similar implications to these early, these Hubble images from the early 90s and in both, you know, garnering public interest in space, but also inspiring a new generation of, of people that, that want to be involved in, in this field of study? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I um, Hubble launched the year that I was born and I don't remember when I first heard about the mission or first saw my, you know, really cool Hubble picture. For me, this that space telescope was always just there and it had always been there and was always producing these beautiful pictures and also beautiful data. And I think JWST is going to be that mission for the people who were born last year who are being born now. Um, I think it's important to remember how big these projects are, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope and the Hubble Space Telescope. Most people don't remember that Hubble, when it first launched, just did not work. You know, its mirrors were not 
working properly and astronauts had to go out and fix it. And, you know, that cost NASA time and money. And um, JWST is a really massive uh, project that went over budget and went over schedule. And, you know, that wasn't what, really what people were talking about last week. Everyone was really focused on these beautiful photos, which are worth celebrating. But I think it's an important lesson for NASA, you know, as it moves forward and builds other space telescopes to think about, you know, what it could do better this time around so that they get to their deadline sooner and they don't, you know, spend um, billions more dollars than they think they want to spend. Um, after Hubble started working properly, it was easy to forget some of the pain points that went on in that project. And I think we're seeing that happen now where people are going to want to forget, you know, how much work and how difficult it took to get to this point with JWST. But it's a good lesson for NASA moving forward because, you know, NASA is a government agency um, funded by taxpayers and, you know, it can show people beautiful pictures and kind of rely on that coolness factor. But it's also JWC provides a lesson for future missions, I think. Marina, before we let you go, I want to chat a bit about some reporting you did um, just after these JWST images were revealed. There was there was another kind of astronomical news story that happened um, regarding discovery of some fast radio bursts. And you wrote about it uh, in The Atlantic First, what are these fast radio bursts and why are they so fascinating to astronomers? Yeah, I think I'm, I might be the only reporter who covered this result last week, but I just think fast radio bursts are weird and funky. Um, they are these, you know, radio signals, these emissions that reach Earth from all directions in the night sky. And astronomers have traced um, the origins of these fast radio bursts to distant galaxies, Um but they don't know what's making these emissions, what's making these radio signals. They think that um, probably it's neutron stars, which are these like leftover cores of once giant stars that have burned through their fuel and they've left behind something really, really dense. And um, but they're they're not sure. So for the last 15 years, astronomers have just been detecting these bursts from all over the night sky and trying to get closer and closer to the to the answer of their astrophysical origins. Um, and as they're doing that, they're also reminding people, we don't think this is aliens. <laughs> we think that these are, yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> they think that there is something very natural and uh, plain almost uh, that can explain where these bursts are coming from, what's making them, but um, they haven't quite pin the culprit yet. It really feels like a game of cosmic clue. They're just kind of exploring the sprawling mansion that is our universe and, and looking for um, the perpetrator. You know, they're catching hundreds of these fast radio bursts with telescopes, but they're still, they still don't know what's in that secret uh, little envelope at the center of the board game that tells them, ah, this is the thing that's creating these bursts. Marina Korn is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She covers space. Be sure to check out her latest two pieces on fast radio bursts and JWST's image reveal. Marina, thank you so much for joining us again. Of course, anytime. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. More coverage of JWST's findings is on our website. Visit WMFE.org space. And never miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed. You can do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Nicole Darden-Creston. Thanks, Nikki. Our intern is Caroline Brockler. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>